Hi, welcome again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas, and we are at the season finale, the season three finale. And as promised, I have a very, very special guest who honestly should have been on the podcast way earlier, given that I am married to one of the smartest social scientists I know. Um, <laughs> uh, Dr. Nina Hatiangadi Thomas uh, works at Children's uh, Hospital of Philadelphia as a pediatric neuropsychologist. I'll let you fill in any other details. I like that you saved me for the season finale. That makes me like the big bad. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, I'm a pediatric neuropsychologist. I work at CHOP, but um, what I'm going to be talking about is work I did way, way, way back as an <laughs> undergraduate at Cornell, which um, back there, they were focused more on personality and social psychology. Mm-hmm. So I worked in the labs of um, Daryl Bem, who's an amazing personality psychologist, and Tom Gilovich, who's an amazing social psychologist. Yeah, and just a slight departure, I think you had mentioned once that you also uh, studied under David Dunning at some point from the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, he was uh, my psychology and law professor, and I think I took a few further classes with him. That's really cool. Um, So today we're going to be talking about counterfactual thinking, and do you want to sort of describe what that is? Yeah, so basically that's the idea of there's what happened, which is factual, and then there's what didn't happen, which is counter to fact, so counterfactual events. And counterfactual thinking kind of describes the extent to which those um, scenarios that you play out of what might have happened counter to what actually happened might actually impact your decisions about things, but especially your feelings about things, so your satisfaction with what actually happened. So, like, when I'm laying awake at night thinking, like, oh, I wish I had said this or that, or replaying (laughs) arguments in my head or or conversations I had that I'm just, like, drowning in regret and can't get to sleep, is that counterfactual thinking? (laughs) That is, because you are playing out scenarios. Now, whether that's maladaptive or adaptive, counterfactual thinking, I think, is up for debate. Um, And the main question is... Are those conversations that you might have in different um, situations again with other people, in which case now you've rehearsed it and you can do better the next time? So when an event is repeatable, you know, counterfactual thinking might actually help you rehearse and improve if you take a test and do poorly thinking, oh, I shouldn't have tried to pull an all-nighter and drink three Red Bulls to get myself ready, (laughs) you know, that lets you know that, okay, next time I'm going to do something differently. But... Um, part of the irony is people have the most counterfactual thoughts about really highly salient, unique events that occurred. So what would, like, what would be an example of that, of like a really like rare event that I'm like obsessing over? So, um, getting in a car accident, Hmm. you know, oh, I shouldn't have been changing the radio station, um, turning down one school to go to another you know if you have a bad experience at the school that you go to you'll always wonder um relationships is a huge one so Mm. people um interestingly men regret not pursuing relationships uh or at least not sleeping with people (laughs) they were attracted to in the past women regret putting time and effort into relationships that didn't pan out I wish I could say that was shocking, but that actually story checks out. (laughs) Um, And so what you were saying before about like trying to learn from something that's repeatable to do better next time. And is that sort of how we learn or is that sort of a functional part of like just the learning process of 
you know, taking uh, past experience. Because when I was looking uh, looking at that aspect of it, like it, it reminded me of like playing games and sort of like, oh, I shouldn't go down that hallway. There's a zombie there, like stuff like that. Right. And I mean, the thing about video games is you get to start from the beginning over and over. Um, the problem with life is you don't get to go back and, and replay those choices. And because you never see how choices play out, I think, especially over time, people have, well, not just I think, I guess the evidence shows that especially over time, as people get older and older, they idealize what would have happened had they um, pursued the opportunities that they passed by. And that was actually the big focus of my paper. Um, there's this cohort of geniuses that was identified, I think, back in the 1920s. It was the um, the study out of Stanford called uh, the Terman Study of Genius, I think was the official name of it. And basically, I think Lewis Terman um, identified a group of kids who were um, geniuses in childhood and followed them up for decades and decades, and they've continued to be followed up when... I did the study, I think they were in their 70s and maybe into their 80s. Um, and even after Terman died, people continued his research. And it's one of the major longitudinal studies. Um, so it was interesting because they were geniuses and he, there's a lot of stereotypes about how geniuses struggle later in life or uh, maybe how they succeed. Um, but even more so, it was just an amazing longitudinal study. And at one point, they asked people what they regret the most. And so um, part of what I was looking at was regrets of action versus regrets of inaction. So you can regret doing something or you can regret not doing something. And the idea, um, which was um, kind of indicated by the results we got, is that people regret inaction a lot more than they regret action. Because if you do something, first of all, you know what happened from doing it. And you also have lots of opportunities to change and mitigate the circumstances. So if you go to a school and you don't like what you're studying, you can change majors, you can transfer, you know, there's things you can do to kind of um, help that action turn out okay. But if you turn down a school, in your head, especially over time, you always imagine the best case scenario. So, oh, if I had gone to that school, I would have been gotten this degree and gotten this perfect job and I would have be a famous person by now in my field. And you never really in your mind play out scenarios in which things happen in an unsatisfactory way. Um, so the idea was that people, especially as they get older, would regret inactions more than actions. And that turned out to be very true. Hmm. And was, was this sort of like specifically wanting to know how geniuses feel about that? Or was it just sort of like the happenstance that, hey, we've got this longitudinal study where we've been asking the same group of people <laughs> questions for like however long. We might as well throw that, you know. Yeah, it just happened to be a longitudinal study and they happened to ask people what their greatest hmm. regret was, which, you know, it's not something that typically comes up and standard longitudinal research where you're asking people about diet and health and social factors and right. things like that. It was, I mean, I think part of what was amazing about the Terman study, and he even said people thought his research was garbage at first because they thought he was asking the wrong questions. But for him, the questions he chose to ask were just very interesting. And for us, it was perfect because otherwise part of our research was finding people 
and asking them their greatest regret, but we wanted them to be over age 35 so that they would have had enough time to live and have regrets. And it's hard to walk up to somebody (laughs) on the street and be like, hey, do you mind participating in research and now tell me your deepest, darkest regret? Like, it's, you know, it's not conducive to probably as... um, honest responding as this longitudinal study where the researchers had been contacting these individuals basically on a regular basis since they were children. And the people who continued to participate were obviously very invested in the study and had good relationships with the study team. Yeah. It's, it's just very, I'm I'm getting a very like, um, uh, umbrella Academy vibe off that, by the way, it's like, you know, following these extraordinary people over life or, um, what was the other one I'm thinking of? Um, Wes Anderson's third movie, The Royal Tenenbaums. Oh. Right? <laughs> I was actually thinking of, of the 7-Up. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Apted's films, which yeah. Which I've not, not actually seen, but just the idea of intensely studying a small group of individuals over a long period of time. I mean, it's it's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, there was another aspect that we, we often chat about with, you know, how timing can work into regret sometimes. So like, can you give me the example of like trying to like, you know, catch a plane or something like that? Yeah. So part of what makes counterfactual events. So like weigh heavily on your mind is the extent to how realistically they might've occurred. So let's say you are rushing to the airport and you missed your plane by half an hour because it took off as scheduled. You're going to feel bad. You missed your plane. But if you're rushing to the airport, you get to the gate and you find out your plane was delayed by 25 minutes and you missed it by five minutes, that's going to make you feel a lot worse. Now, objectively, it's the same. You missed your plane either way. It shouldn't really matter if you missed it by five minutes, you know, or 50 minutes. A miss is as good as a mile. But... right. You can see how in the second scenario, the idea that it was delayed just a little bit more, I mean, to have a plane be delayed is already a rare circumstance. To have it just been delayed a little bit more, you can easily play out that scenario in which you just caught your plane. And so that makes you feel a lot worse about the situation. Yeah, there's like an Olympic uh, medalist version of this too, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you think about, you know, gold, silver, bronze, you think gold medalist should be the happiest, silver medalist should be next happiest, bronze medalist should be the third happiest, um, because that's the order of the medals. But what happens is people who get the silver, to them, their most likely counterfactual thought is, I almost got the gold. Like, if I had done something a little bit differently, I could have gotten the gold. Whereas for the bronze medalist, they almost think, oh, my God, I almost didn't medal. You know, if I had (laughs) done something a little bit differently, fourth place is, you know, is as good as just showing up. So um, part of uh, Dr. Gilovich's research is he he got people who were completely uninterested in sports because you don't want people picking up cues from like, you know, the watching the races and stuff. And he just had a, a series of video clips of people like after they crossed the finish line, after they performed, when they're finding out their score or whatever was relevant for the sport. And he just had um, observers rating their objective happiness, like how satisfied or happy they looked. And um, the the bronze medalists were much happier than the silver medalists. <laughs> and the idea is because of um, the influence of their counterfactual thinking. 
Yeah, I was I was at South by Southwest recently waiting in line for a uh, Robert Rodriguez like premiere, and it was one of those lines where right you know it was a very long line and then like they were just letting a few people in at a time toward the end like two people at a time mm-hmm. and i was literally the last person they didn't let in Aww. it got right up to me <laughs> two people went in ahead of me wait 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 and then someone comes out and says okay that's it and i'm like oh come on yeah. <laughs> and it, again it's that notion of if i had gotten there one minute earlier yeah. it could have been so different <laughs> and if you were even four or five people back you probably would have felt better about it oh yeah, oh, yeah totally you know that's that's five people they would have had to let in but yeah yeah um it's funny that you mentioned like how when things don't break your way or you think of a choice you didn't make that we tend to be optimistic about that and think of what the best case like is it i wonder if it's like more therapeutic to sort of like you know uh also uh, make an effort to think if i had made this different choice what's the worst that could have happened almost to sort of like balance it out a little bit yeah that's true and you know some people I feel like people actually do that sort of counterfactual thinking almost protectively, like, you Mm. know, somebody's getting on a plane. Oh, my God, what am I going to do if the plane crashes? Like they play out these worst case scenarios in a way that makes them feel like, okay, you know, I'm rehearsing this so that I can deal with it if it happens. Obviously, if it happens too much, that's, you know, fuel for anxiety disorder, but Anything that makes the path that you chose seem more equitable with the path you passed by is going to reduce the amount of cognitive angst you feel about having done what you did. Um, Part of what was interesting about this research, and we've talked about this a little bit in casual conversation, is because I focused on sort of regrets of action versus regrets of inaction, um... I think it's really altered my life in that Mm. anytime I've faced a big decision, a big choice, I've had a tendency to just jump, you know, and go for it and do the thing that I was scared about with this little voice in the back of my head thinking, what, you know, what, what are you going to regret about this situation if you don't give this a try? Mm, So, um, we were talking about our big regrets, you know, at dinner last night and, I don't think I have that many. And I think a lot of that, that is because I did this research at a very formative period in my life, you know, and it's always been my watchword that, you know, yes, things are scary, but just sign up, just do it. You'll make it work. And, um, that's worked out to my advantage, I think. Yeah. And we're talking about this too. And like, and I, I do also a little bit of you know, when I think about my regrets, also think about like, okay, so I think sometimes about if I had, you know, pursued film more aggressively when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, I made more movies then than I kind of do these days. And uh, like part of it's like, oh yeah, I could have been a big filmmaker by now or whatever. And there's a couple things, right? There's survivorship bias, right? Which we've talked about before on the show of like, yeah, I can point to a handful of indie filmmakers who've kind of made it, you know, but I can also point to thousands of people who tried the same thing and got nowhere. Um, so there's that to sort of help mitigate that regret. Yeah. I and, mean, would yeah. those films have been your version of a bad relationship that yeah. you put time <laughs> and money into instead yeah. of pursuing other goals? Yeah. And then the other thing I think about sometimes is like if I had – you know, also, had I actually even succeeded, like gotten through that survivorship, you know, uh, gauntlet and, you know, become a big filmmaker, are there things about me that would have changed? Like, would I have been a less, you know, a more insensitive person because I, you know, started getting success early in life and so thought I was, you know, super awesome when actually maybe I wasn't quite yet, you know? You're still super awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
So one of the nice things about uh, you not just being a psychologist but a neuropsychologist is that you don't just look at the um, at the uh, behaviors, right? You can also kind of look at the sort of where those things are located in the brain itself, like the actual mechanisms. So one of the things when I was looking into um, this is that the orbitofrontal cortex yeah uh yeah let's make sure i get that right um is kind of implicated in um counterfactual thinking like if you have lesions there you sort of can see less of it and when people do kind of um have those kind of thoughts that that's the part that kind of lights up as it were so i don't know if you can talk a little more about that oh yeah that's interesting i actually hadn't heard that um and my work in this area predated my neuropsychological interest, but um, it makes sense. I mean, the orbitofrontal cortex is involved in associative learning and decision-making. There's a lot of um, connections to the amygdala, which has, you know, a lot of, a big role to play in emotion and the way you experience emotion. Um, And you think of like the prototypical history book definition of orbitofrontal damage is like Phineas Gage, the the railway worker who got the metal rod up through his um, frontal lobe um, and how it made him act in ways that were impulsive. You know, he became more foul mouthed. And I think um, it makes sense if you think that one of the reasons you might be able to tamp down on your impulsivity is playing out scenarios in which, you know, as someone who's a little impulsive myself, I think sometimes <laughs> something comes out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, maybe I should have just fast forwarded <laughs> to two seconds later and how that would have, uh, you know, been reacted to. So um, being able to play out those scenarios um, probably help people um, restrain their impulsive behaviors because they can kind of see the oh what would happen if this if i said this and then what would happen if i didn't say this that those sort of counterfactual thoughts are are very um adaptive yeah and i feel like i suffer from the opposite where it's like i try to think through every possible scenario before (laughs) i say something (laughs) cheaty (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah no i think there's like everything there is a a happy medium between overthinking versus acting impulsively and not thinking at all and finding that happy medium is something a lot of people struggle with. Um, it's interesting. I uh, went to a talk at work late recently about, um, it was about intimate partner violence. And so um, it was looking at individuals who had been exposed to domestic abuse and had sort of chronic trauma related to that and it was looking at how they interact with their own children and, mm-hmm. you know, um, individuals who had been exposed to chronic trauma, even if they were out of that situation, still tended to have these um, abnormal interactions with their children where they were either too aloof, like holding off when the kids were crying or trying to get their attention or alternately like too intrusive. So they're playing in a way that they think the child is enjoying even when the child is clearly like not enjoying and trying to withdraw they're following the child and like getting in their face and like poking them with puppets and you know Mm. and just not picking up on social cues and um one of the things the researcher mentioned is they were doing neuroimaging in association with the study and the big difference they found was in orbitofrontal cortex um in the brains of these parents who had been exposed to intimate partner violence. And um, I kind of asked him, I'm like, is that because 
do you think like somebody who's been in that situation plays out a lot of scenarios of how do I escape? What's going to happen next? Um, and he really, he said they hadn't really looked at that or even thought about it much, but it kind of makes sense to me because when you're exposed to violence, especially when you're exposed to violence very early in life, I mean, that's an unpredictable situation and, and you spend a lot of your cognitive energy in a way that's focused on how do I withdraw from this situation? How do I escape this situation? How do I respond if this happens or if that happens? Um, and those types of scenarios um, playing out contingency-based um, relationships uh, is very associated with orbitofrontal um, areas of the brain. So they think it's a lot about not just decision-making, but decision-making in certain contexts. So how the environment um, impacts the decisions that you're making at any given time. Yeah, actually a friend of mine recently I was talking to, um, was talking about how she's traveling the country right now and what she likes to do when she gets to a different part of the country is turn on the local radio. And so parts of the country she's in, the local radio is showing the farm report. And the farm report was often talking about, you know, weather conditions and the different prices for things like grain, the things that the farmer might be selling, and they fluctuate wildly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the sort of thing where you sort of realize that, you know, these farmers are living with a ton of uncertainty about right. really important things. And when you start to think about how different parts of the country, you know, vote differently or behave differently, you know, it's sort of like you can start to see how that really, really, that level of uncertainty really plays a role. Yeah, I think insecurity is, uh, you know is very hard to cope with cognitively and you try to compensate for that insecurity by, you know, when you're a kid, by magical rituals. You know, if I do this or that, then I won't get hit. Or, mm. you know, if I, um, you know, say this term to myself 10 times before I go to sleep, I won't have nightmares. Um, and people do whatever they need to, to feel like they have some sort of control over their environment. Yeah. Um, whether it's adaptive or not. Yeah. That's a, that's a lesson I've definitely learned over and over again, like looking at different cognitive biases. A lot of them fall back to, hey, if I have this pattern of thinking, it'll make me feel like I have certainty, even though in point of fact, it's, you know, nonsense, right? Like logically it doesn't make sense, oh. but emotionally it makes sense. Yeah, the scariest truth to get your head around is that bad things can happen and you don't have any control yeah. over them. Yeah. So whatever your brain can concoct to deny that truth is yeah. something that it's going to do in a heartbeat. Um, so another thing uh, when I was uh, looking into this, I found kind of, I was reminded of uh, is like how um, like the pop culture, I guess, equivalent of this is uh, time travel movies. Oh, so yeah. if you think about like, I was reading this or watching this really interesting um, YouTube clip about the history of time travel narratives. And a lot of it talks about the earliest time travel narratives are really about regret. And like, I wish I could go back and change the thing. Oh, wait, I can. I've invented time travel. Right. And so you the see. The fix it. Yeah, exactly. And so whether it's Back to the Future or Terminator or whatever, like this just, you know, cycle of trying to go back and fix it, I think, like is our pop culture way of working through that. And people rarely screw things up more in time travel. Like you think, oh, butterfly effect, they could make things even immensely worse, but usually they don't. And so... I mean, they're playing out that best case scenario yeah. of where they take the path that, that was passed by the first time and everything worked out just the way they wanted it to. Yeah, I actually think the most like, realistic in that sense of you might not get it better is there. there's a certain version of that narrative that's 
really very similar to video games where you keep going back to the same day over and over again. So like Groundhog Day or Edge of Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And what you find is people go back and sometimes they make it worse, sometimes they make it better. But if they get to do it enough times, they actually master it. Right. (laughs) And it's like they can (laughs) do it perfectly. But I feel like that's a more realistic time travel scenario. It's like if you go back, there's so much you don't know. You could it's far more likely you're going to make it worse, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking of that Simpsons uh, oh, Treehouse yeah. of Horror yeah. where it rains donuts at the end. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes you might have to settle for good enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think that, you know, it's human nature to replay uh, scenarios and think about what would I have done differently? And I think you're right. Time travel is that ultimate wish fulfillment of how could I have the knowledge that I have now and go back and make that same decision again? Because the truth is, if you believe you can go back into the past and change one thing, and it's going to have a huge effect on the future, then you should be able to change one thing now. (laughs) But nobody feels that way. You know, nobody feels like, oh, if I just, you know, do one little thing now, I could have this huge impact on the future. It's always in retrospect. And, you know, I think that's because... You, you feel like what's happened is, is more salient than any sort of future event. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I, I, I pulled that out the other day. This, um, we were having a discussion about, like, oh, things are so crazy these days. I feel like there's nothing I can do that'll have any impact. And there was, I think it was like a Tumblr post or something that was sort of like, people <laughs> always stress about going into the past. Any little thing's going to change. It's like, well, why don't you think that right now? Yeah. And uh, that, you know, I, I find that that reassuring is this notion of like, you can, you don't, but, but I guess what I never really connected was, oh, the reason you think so much, you know, about, you think so highly of impact, you know, and going back is that you kind of know how it turned out. Right. And so you feel like you understand it better. Again, you have more certainty about what's already happened versus what could happen in the future. Yeah. And you can see that, like, you clearly see the divergence of those paths, whereas now you might think, oh, I could do this thing, but it won't make a difference either way. So you don't really see it as a fork in the road until afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I remember you telling me right before the election, you know, could we throw Hillary Clinton some more money? Because I would just hate to think about, you know, not having done that. And then Trump wins. And I was like, oh, come on, man. Trump's not going to win. It doesn't really matter. But sure, if it's going to make you feel better. And, uh, you know, in perfect hindsight, you were completely right. I was completely wrong. I wish we had done all that and more earlier, you know, but um, that's because we have the knowledge and it was a yeah. true fork in the road. If Hillary had been elected, we I, I would look back at that and say, Hey, that was, you know, kind of silly. We knew she was going to get elected either way. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. We would have been like, Oh yeah, it's, 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 it's obvious in retrospect. Um, it is not a good movie, but, uh, there's a, a movie called, I think it's called next. It's a, um, Nick Cage movie among, you know, millions of Nick Cage <laughs> movies, but the idea is his power say is no more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a Nick Cage movie. It's a, it's a post, you know, uh, 2010 Nick Cage movie. Um, but, uh, but his power is that he can basically see multiple future, multiple super near futures, right? So mm. he can go through a room with a bunch of bad guys and be like, I know I can play out all the different scenarios of how to get through this room and figure out the exact right one, like instantly. Right. And like, to me, that's like, that's the superpower of like trying to, that, that would be the equivalent of like, you know, pre counterfactual thinking of being able to like think through all the scenarios in advance rather than go back and think about, Oh, all the things that could have happened. Right. But you know, it's a good limitation in that it's just the next decision because yeah. 
who knows you could get through that room and you know there's a bomb on the other side yeah. so um yeah i think true ability to see all the possible futures would drive people insane <laughs> yeah yeah um well thank you very much for uh coming on the show i say like i've just met you and, <laughs> and we're not going to see each other again and, well i and, have to say i was a little nervous about <laughs> actually uh coming on the show so <laughs> i will accept your thing <laughs> awesome so so that is it for season three of the cognitive bias podcast we'll be back uh we're going to basically take the rest of the spring off and be back in the summer with season four um once again for the cognitive bias podcast i'm your host david dolan thomas and we will see you in a while I think I should pull out a gun at this point. She just as a surprise, big bad cliffhanger. What will happen? Oh no! I can't believe they killed him. Are they going to bring him back? All that intimate partner violence stuff was just foreshadowing. It got so dark so fast. Oh. Season four. What will happen? Is she going to be those? All right. So we'll we'll find out. All right. Thanks, everybody. 